Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Linda Blade, who has worked for 25 years as sports performance professional coach in Edmonton, teaching fundamental movement skills to athletes in over 15 sports, beginner to elite. Since 2014, Linda has served as president of the board for Athletics Alberta, where she has a duty to contend with proposals to insert gender ideology into Canadian sport policy. Linda's entire life has been about sports, from playing street soccer as a small child to becoming Bolivian champion in track and field at age 15 years, securing an NCAA Title IX scholarship and winning All-American honors while at the University of Maryland, later becoming Canadian champion and competing internationally with Team Canada in heptathlon and obtaining a PhD in kinesiology with a specialty in studying physical anthropology and sexual dimorphism in growing children. Welcome to Savage Minds, Linda Blade. Well, I am you. so psyched to talk to you because your name <laughs> came up in an interview I had yesterday with Chris Elston, who said yes. you had reached out to him after he got bashed up in Montreal. Yes. We're seeing what many people have referred to now as Tranada coming under siege by a very tiny group, but a very powerful group of trans activists who have taken hold of Canada in a way that I told Chris, it's, it's religious-like. And he yes. said, yes, it's also cult-like. And this whole movement in and out of Canada has all the earmarks of cultism. And yeah. as I just told you before the show, this is my least favorite topic, but I feel ethically obliged to cover it because yeah. of what Biden pronounced in January what you all are going through in Canada mm -hmm. and what you will be going through in Canada, because as we just saw, a gentleman is now in prison or jail. That's right. Robert Hoogland. Can you talk about this to our listeners who are all over the world? Can you just sort of sum up what's going on in, in Canada? Yeah, well, with, with respect to that father, um, we have in the school system something called SOGI, uh, um, sexual or, uh, orientation and gender identity. And it's like an entire curriculum that somehow has been approved in the, in the provinces, the Western provinces of Canada, which are British Columbia and Alberta. It's particularly shocking in Alberta because we were considered to be sort of the Texas of Canada with our oil and everything and very sort of, uh, you know, conservative. And it's surprising that it's here, but also in the schools of British Columbia, British Columbia is, you know, California of Canada. So I mean, they're very progressive uh, and this whole set of, um, <clears throat> I guess, the, the religion of gender identity and gender self-ID has taken a hold and it's being taught from kindergarten to grade 12 and into the universities. And so if you teach children from day one that they might be born in the wrong body, um, you know, it's, it's really turned into a racket where the school teaches this lesson and they do the even role play on changing their gender identity and using different pronouns and the children who then uh, say, well, you know what, I, you know, I might be trans then. And then, so then the teacher sends them to the, the school counselor, the counselor is locked into the ideology, they counsel them further and then send them to the gender clinic who then affirms them further, gives them, starts giving them hormones. And, you know, meanwhile, the parents are out of the loop. The parents are not being given any right to you know, to basically sign off or approve or anything. They just suddenly find out 
as Robert Hoogland did in, in British Columbia, that his daughter was suddenly, she was, I think, 12 years old at the time, at first, when she was going by a different name, a boy's name instead of a girl's name at school. And I think he found out through the, te- like a, a um, school yearbook or something. Mm-hmm. And um, so then turns out that she was already sent to the gender clinic in Vancouver and already started down the road of taking like, they wanted to give her testosterone, his ex-wife, uh, or they were parted somehow. She was, you know, trying to say, well, I don't know, they're telling me to do this, but he was saying, don't, don't take testosterone. She's, you know, he was trying to get his daughter to not go down the medical pathway. And then the activist lawyers and the court started to tell him, you can't do that. You have to call her by her male name. You have to say he, if you don't say he, you're putting this child in jeopardy because that's going to lead to psychological stress, maybe suicide. Um, And so he was basically bamboozled into, you know, you must do what the government says about your own child. And when he refused, of course, then, then the court, you know, the court slaps on like a, a gag order. So you can't talk about it. And then all of the podcasters, excuse me, who were talking about it were then also threatened with legal action. So it all boils down to a year or so later, he's in jail now. All of a sudden he's in jail. Yesterday he went to jail. How long will he be in jail? Do you know? Nobody really knows. Like we, I think the thing is he could have avoided it if he would have, you know, recanted and, you know, done the old sort of mea culpa and all of these things. But he's just saying, no, this is, a, this is my daughter. I can't say, I can't tell, I am not forced to say a lie. I have to speak truth about my daughter. And, and if this is, if I have to go to jail to prove the point, then I will. And I guess that's what ended up happening because the, the bottom line is, uh, as um, I'm sure that Chris, the billboard Chris that you had on, if you talked to him, he would probably have told you that it's the judge is almost handcuffed too because of our crazy laws. So tell me, Linda, what is going on that this even became a fad? And it's a trend. And we need to stop pretending that the tens of thousands of girls signing up for GoFundMe for double mastectomies are all gender dysphoric. Yeah, well, I think Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, uh, certainly describes why that's happening. And it really does line up with the um, generation, the first generation of social media. I think social media really became common around 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. uh, as far as Facebook and everybody being online and, and um, you know, Instagram and everything else. And I really think this is the first generation that's, uh, you know, expressing what happens when you have people all over the world setting trends and sharing ideas. And if there's one dominant sort of woke ideology, I guess it doesn't surprise me that this newfangled everything, you know, everybody together, we're all talking the same language kind of thing and thinking the Mm -hmm. same thoughts. I mean, it shows you how dangerous it can be in terms of just having one dominant idea that goes kind of off the rails. But then we've got people like Robert Hoogland, who, and he's one of many, because when I started writing about this subject, uh, 2013, I got more letters, emails, I should specify, from Canadians than any other nationality. 
And they were all saying the same thing. I've been told that I should be doing this and bringing my daughter or son to this gender clinic to start hormone blocking. And then to, you know, and they went through the litany and the doctor, when I said, I wasn't comfortable with this, that this smacked of gay conversion therapy would not offer me any alternatives. There is no alternative being offered in most parts of the country. And now as we're seeing with this gentleman and his arrest, the pushing back on it is having one being made into a persona non grata, being arrested. I have mm. to wonder if his employment in future or present will be affected by this. Oh, will People be. Will, will be made homeless. Yeah. So I would just say, yeah, I'm just saying that I think it started, there's that aspect is the online aspect. And I guess I should follow up and just say, um, Canadians are, you know, very empathetic. They see themselves as empathetic and nice and the nicest people in the world. And so when the um, LGB went through and then had their moment where they needed to have support and of course the AIDS crisis, and then we all sort of got through to, you know, okay, it's acceptable and you can't undertake conversion therapy against somebody on the basis of their sexual orientation. Now Canada's running around you know, uh, it's like Douglas Murray's St. George and the, the dragon or whatever, looking for the next slay, thing to slay. And so the T was added and now we have to all support the T because if we don't support the T, uh, then uh, we are just going back to the dark ages where we didn't help the LGB, uh, the LGB right? And so um, I think there was part of that. There was that. And then I think, um, and then, we just have these, you know, it just came through the system where uh, the third sort of leg of the, the, the stool was the, um, the postmodernism and like all of this thing about this doctrine that was being taught, whether it was through gender studies or women's studies, I don't know. But a lot of those university students came through the system and now they're all populated within the bureaucracy. So um, we have a situation in sports where even if we're trying to try to get through to the to the ministerial level with the problem of male bodies and female sports, the um, the LGBTQ um, secretariat screens anything that goes back and forth to the ministerial level. So we like the government just is completely shielded with this, you know, in this case of. They're never going to see another idea besides gender identity friendly ideas because it'll never get through the shield. So the situation with sports, I mean, you are yourself involved in sports. Yeah. How did you come to learn about what was happening? Well, I am president of track and field in Alberta, Athletics Alberta. And, um, you know, long before that, I was an athlete, national champion in the 80s in the heptathlon and, and now and then a coach for a long time. I was a coach and I started out uh, even at, right after being an athlete. I was in Africa. So I did I did some coaching on the ground and teaching other people how to coach and that sort of thing. And then I spent a whole before my children were born, I did the kind of the world lecture tour where they'd send me into an Islamic country, for example, like Iran or whatever. And then I. I, I was in 95 was probably the first Western sportswoman to go into Iran to teach anything. Um, and I went in to teach the girls, the women, how to coach the girls. Um, so I was in the coaching education stream. And so long story short, I end up back in Alberta 
And by, you know, I'm, I'm now president of association. I have to go to national meetings. And all of a sudden I see this, this rule that you're going to have to allow, um, or a policy proposal, I should say, it's not a rule yet, but it's a policy, strong policy proposal that we allow male bodies to compete or self-identify into women's sport. And I only, I saw that I took a look at the document in 2018. So only three years ago, before that, I really had kind of a loose idea of what was going on out there, but so busy coaching and doing my job and working. Uh, my main job is sport performance consultants, you know, just private business. Um, I don't know. I was just so busy. I didn't even have a clue what was going on, Julian. I, I basically just thought, well, I'll keep my head down uh, in sport. And all of a sudden they came for sport. And all of a sudden I'm looking at this document and I'm saying, well, this, this isn't going to work. This isn't sport. I mean, we know that male bodies are different than female bodies. That is why we have men's sports and women's sports. And um, the thing that I found most shocking was when I said to the male colleagues or just all of the other presidents of the other provinces, um, you know, this is not, <laughs> this is crazy. You know, this is crazy, right? And they all look down at their hands and shrug their shoulders. Like they just act like, well, what are we going to do about it? It's kind of like what we should do. And <laughs> I was just... I just thought, I looked at the, around the table. I thought, are you, are you kidding me? Like what, uh, what's happening here? What is happening here? So I, I wasn't really getting very far trying to um, just talk at the table, you know, do things the right way. Like, you know, just behind the scenes and working hard at talking about policy and working it out properly with your colleagues. Everybody was so frightened. And I thought, well, something really bizarre is going on here. So that's when I sort of took a little bit to Twitter and trying to figure out are other people dealing with this? Um, and yeah, I found out the truth pretty quickly. There are vested interests by the trans lobby. They mm -hmm. have one of their own involved in a major study in the US. And the result of that though, is basically proving our point yeah. that males who go on puberty blockers and who even take, let's say, effeminizing hormones, still maintain an advantage. Oh, for sure. On Twitter, on Facebook, people have these never-ending arguments that I find fruitless to have at this point because the peer-reviewed papers are there. We've, we've read them. There's new mm -hmm. ones coming out all the time. Mm -hmm. Why are so many people in the transgender lobby debating what is a fact? Yeah. And they've chosen the, if they've chosen sport, they've come for sport. They've chosen the wrong platform. They're going to lose on this platform because it's just, you're never going to, they're, they're either going to lose by being, you know, shown how ridiculous it is, but through all the research, which is happening. And I think you are referring to Joanna Harper, right? Like the research, um, and I, I debated Joanna uh, recently uh, anyway, but, um, you know, either they're going to lose by just the argument, which they should lose on that basis. But if they don't win, if they don't lose the argument, let's say we lose the argument about allowing male bodies into female sports, then what's going to happen is over time, once the there's like right now one or two women's sport continues kind of tripping along with everybody being unhappy. But if there's too many more, 
uh, males in the finals and on the podiums, um, two things will happen. Women will quit. Uh, female athletes will just walk away. So it's not worth it. Um, and the other thing is once a final is a hundred percent trans, like males identifying as women, they aren't going to be affirmed anymore. Like it's not going to be anything like people will just shrug their shoulders because they're not special. Like well, the whole point is they're trying to be special, they're trying to come into women's sport to affirm. Well, that's what a lot of people new to this topic are missing. A lot of people say, well, why don't you just let them on? And then you have to backtrack and say, well, people have said for years, why don't you form your own transgender category? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, they wouldn't want to do that. And then you're like, no, of course not. Don't you understand? This is actually not only about them invading women's spaces, even symbolic uh, team yeah. spaces mm -hmm. or, or separate segregated female spaces for sports. Yeah. It's about them being affirmed. That's right. As they're female. They're using it as social therapy, mental therapy, whatever you call it. Exactly. And you don't use sport for that. And if you use sport for that, it kills sport because it's not sport anymore. It's um, social pan pantomime. So basically all you're doing is you're, you're invading an area that's pristine in a sense. It's like you're saying, I want to go into this really, really pristine nature preserve and I'm going to throw garbage everywhere around and then I'm going to act like like that's where I still want to be. So in other words, you're, you're going to be, defile the very thing you think is going to help you in, in terms of what you want. And all the women walk away and you're standing there with all a bunch of other males uh, who, who, you know, who are trying to seek the same affirmation you are, and you're all in this final together. And so you basically created your own trans category anyway. And then within the, the next step after that is even the trans um, identifying males will walk away because they're not getting affirmed anymore. So then you have this wasteland, like the post-nuclear whatever wasteland where no women are there, nor, no men are there. I mean, like you basically just decimated sports, women's sports to get a little bit of a, a hit for one or two years or even half a decade. And then it's not there anymore for you. And so you move on and then we're going to have to rebuild again. And I'm thinking to myself, why, why don't we, why did we do all of this? Why didn't you just leave us alone in the first place? Like, why, like, why do we have to go through this entire cycle to rebuild women's sports 10 years from now? Meanwhile, an entire generation of girls and women have lost the chance to do just something they love to do and something that's very expressive. It's a human expression. And for many, it pays for university, like Selena Soul lost out on a on a, co a college scholarship yeah. and those girls that she's involved with the lawsuit you know all the trans lobby can say is oh but the adf is right wing i interviewed them that solicitor that represented the adf was spot on i want her at my table when it comes right. time for judgment day because i don't care left or right this is where people get caught up in what i call political semantics if you're yeah. a so-called mm. leftist arguing, and this has happened within the feminist circles, that you shouldn't be talking to people on the right side of the aisle, um, you're not much of a feminist. Similarly, if all you've got is that, you know, Selena Soul and the other women are being represented by the ADF as your own 
only argument, you don't have an argument because I can tell you as someone who transitioned from academia to journalism and the first lesson I learned, because this was one of my first big topics that I investigated and have been on for years, was that no left-wing publication will touch this ever. I was publishing right. a lot in Counterpunch on this until my editors told me, Julian, we can't run any more gender pieces. We get too many threats and harassment over it. It's causing us too much grief. So that's how it ended. And they were one of the last bastions on the left to run pieces on this. So of course, everyone has been writing in the right-wing media because the mm. left won't have it. Just like, where are the Democrat socialists or those on the left, be it in the UK or Canada and elsewhere, speaking yeah. out? about the rights of women like what are they yeah. saying in the parliament in canada about our rights or do we exist they're just saying trans women are women and so they're they're basically throwing women's category into the open like they're just saying the the female female biological female we have one of the guys in the bureaucracy in canada who's pushing this um ideology the most in sports in the Canadian, and ironically, the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport, which was supposed to be set up after the Ben Johnson scandal to only deal with doping and cheating. And this is the center, CCES, that's now pushing trans in sport and gender ideology. And he literally said that we need to reconsider categorization of sport and the, he calls it the obsolete, the obsolete definition of female. And so basically, he literally said those words when he was responding to the ruling on Semenya. But basically, he's just saying what he's saying is, look, ladies, step aside. Your category is open now to anybody who self-identifies and biology. Hmm. You know, and which is which is funny because biology is what he's supposed to be all about. Like when you do your doping control. It's all about chemicals, uh, molecule specificity. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't understand how a person who can be in charge of doping control not realize that when you allow somebody from the opposite sex into the women's category, it's fifty times worse than doping. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't even understand that. Well, yes. I mean, the it's first insanity. thing I thought of with this was Lance Armstrong. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, he'd be in good form today. He yeah. could just make the argument, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and so what, have, what has transpired? Have you and others pointed out that what is happening is part of a trans agenda, a social temper tantrum of sorts, using women's sports as their, you know, play box? Yeah. So here's the thing, because I am in sport, because I am in the trenches of sport all the time, doing things all, whether I'm coaching or in administration or in policy development or program development, I don't feel like I have the expertise necessarily to say, well, here's the big picture. It started with Yogi Akarta. And I mean, I don't know. I could, I could try to trace a big fat line, you know, all the way through the last 30 years showing how this is a big movement. It's a big capture of an ideology. It's a cult. Um, where I see my place really is I'm defending my territory. Um, and if it's probably for others like you who are far more, I can tell, oh my goodness, Julian, you are far more um, 
informed about where this comes from, who's involved, all of the threads. It's, you know, just like a detective with the board and putting the strings here and there. Um, I don't have that whole story yet. I'm getting there. My um, strength, I feel, is simply to argue uh, for, you know, the boundaries and the, the fences around my territory and where, and defend and doing really my, what is my job as president of an association is to protect my members, our people, to make sure policy is sane and rational so we can implement it. So our officials aren't put at risk. So our parents and athletes aren't put at risk. Um, it's pretty hard though now in an environment where actual policy and legislation and human rights law is is working sort of seems to be working against us however in canada i recognize that it's antithetical and in conflict with the larger power which is the canadian charter of rights and freedoms i mean in the charter we are never supposed to be allowed to be, you know, there's no discrimination on the basis of sex. Well, if you put a male body into female spaces, that's dis discrimination on the basis of sex. And, that diff and it definitely means biological. So you have the charter rights on the one hand, and then you have these newer human rights legislations and legal laws and policies that contradict the charter and also in the within the you know in individual provincial human rights lobbies and and, and boards um i'm still appealing to the charter because i feel like on the, on the basis of the charter rights i am allowed to protect my territory did canada take into account the yoga Carta principles in addressing let's say gender identity well, I mean, they've <laughs> Canada swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, we are the country uh, that is totally going down the path of the Yogyakarta. And maybe you can explain what that is because I'm still trying to get my head around what happened. Was that in Indonesia? Is that, was it Indonesia? Yes, or, the yeah. Progressive Country for Women's Rights, Indonesia. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm saying this as, I mean, for those listening, you know, please check out my scholarly writings I've written for years about Islamophobia and racism in the West post 9-11. I have real issues with the Islamophobia that happened all over the U.S. in the months after, in the years after 9-11. But I do have to say that if people are not doing their homework and joining the dots as to why transgender ideology even exists in this stage of very late capitalism, then I'd say people need to go back to the drawing board and go to the library, check out books on this because it's all out there. And I was mentioning this yesterday with Chris, but we need to start studying how being born in the wrong body, a very medieval concept for what it's worth, even persisted until now, because this was something that came out of the very sexist, very post-World War II Cold War era of 1950s North America. It came out in an era where homosexuality was completely repressed. After a brief blip of freedom in the Weimar Republic, uh, where, not coincidentally, was where one of the first transgender 
surgeries occurred where uh, <clears throat> the German doctors at the time did a penile transplant. Of course, that woman died. What? But yes, <laughs> oh, this gosh. is all very well documented. And it's, you know, people like to point to Germany and the Weimar Republic or even the whole culture of nudism and sexual freedom. Oh, but we can go back to those thinkers, one of whom, the great grandfather of queer theory, so to speak, who was a closet case. So we really need to be careful about who we're chalking up as the founders of this movement. Because as I said to Chris yesterday, John Money from New Zealand, who is a, a psychologist in the US, is the one who sort of put the rails and the trains on those rails and set that choo-choo train in motion, having quote unquote cured a boy with a botched circumcision, uh, turning him into, oh, suggesting that the parents have him turned into a complete girl. Of course, he and his twin brother ended up dying, tragic deaths, suicides, and it's all very linked. But this is the cement. This is the undergirding of that house that's been built. It's a crappy, I mean, any other house would have fallen by now. Exactly. But this house has been kept up because of money and because of the John Hopkins Gender Clinic in the US and the Georges Bureau Clinic in Casablanca, Morocco, which is in fact mm. more important, but a lot of people don't know about it. But this was the epicenter of transgender surgeries for decades. <laughs> and it's where in the, again, equally progressive for women Brazil under the throes of a massive dictatorship in the 60s and 70s, they were coming gay men to get corrected. And this was overt gay conversion therapy for many. There were some autogynophiles. And, you know, I also spoke to Ray Blanchard recently, who's noted that autogynophilia is now the more preponderant formation of transgender persons because as homosexuality is more accepted, surprise, surprise, we're seeing fewer of those cases. So where is the research showing us that this is even a reality? Because the research is saying it's not. The research is showing how it's a sexual fetish, yeah. how it was a tool to be used against gay men and women, mostly men at the time, to correct a very sick and homophobic culture. And now in recent years, we're, we're basically seeing it being used against women because the vast majority of the cases, referrals, are of females, not of males. So how yeah. did it come to be that we have modeled something on the golden age of McCarthyism and atomic nuclear underground shelters, sexism, yeah. that is perpetuated by these people today? Look at what Ellen Page did. A new piece just came out about how she had already had her double mastectomy. Of course, oh, they call no. it gender-confirming surgery, just like I'm sure people call clitorectomies, you know, God-affirming surgery. Who knows? Why is it that this has happened, that Canada has been, aside from the niceness, aside from the progressive politics and other ways that Canada does have, how is it that the people have lost their minds? Anyone knows that males are stronger in sports, even without this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't need studies to show that. They, exactly. Everybody knows. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, in order to argue, we have to point the data. And uh, as you say, the data is coming out now very, very clearly that no matter how much uh, you uh, try to put uh, different hormone into your body or have a surgery, you can't undo a male physiology. I mean, the, the, the long-term development is different. And so... Yeah, so Canada, um, 
I think honestly, um, part of it is because we're a lot more spread out. I think about the UK, like geographically, the women in the UK are just so great at getting together and marching and, and working together to combat. Like I just noticed today, fair play for women. Oh my goodness, Nic Nicola Williams. I mean, she just won against the, the statistics, like for the, the, the census in the UK, like uh, they won the right to keep the definition of sex and the census, biological sex. I mean, that's just huge. Um, in Canada, we're stumbling along underground, this underground network of women that I have tapped into, thank goodness, um, and with COSBAR and, and the Women's Human Rights Campaign. But honestly, we're so spread out. I mean, it's really hard. It's very difficult. I mean, even though we have online things, uh, it's very difficult once there's a major um, sort of narrative out there across the land especially CBC is completely captured that our, you know, major media outlet, uh, radio and TV, um, spewing out this nonsense day in and day out. I mean, it's very difficult to, to, to activate a group of people. Uh, you know, when we have four time zones, um, that we have to contend with, I mean, I mean, you know, we're all little islands with lots of land in between. This is really what Canada is. It's, a, it's, it's clusters of people and cities sort of within a hundred miles of the U S border, but strung out like beads on a train on a, on a chain all the way across beads on a string with lots of gaps in between. And it's just hard. It's really difficult to, um, you know, to get these women together. Megan Murphy has tried and she's done a pretty good job with her, um, you know, the, the um, oh man, uh, YVR, GID YVR, um, having some meetings and the library meetings, but it is, it's getting this thing kickstarted is very difficult in this country. It takes a lot of funding, a lot of time to travel, a lot of time to meet with other women, a lot of effort. We are very spread out, and that's the one. That's a big problem. Let's get back to this notion of kindness and our mm -hmm. Canadian kindness and yeah. apologeticness. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about this over the last even few years because the feminists will talk about how women, you know, we're all groomed from girlhood to be kind. Yeah, and I've, I've, I don't know if you've seen my tweets on this, but sometimes I'll just say, "Stop giving us your socks to sort," and that's my yeah, metaphor. Like we're not the group that's supposed to be taking care of grown men's sock drawers. You know, this was part of 1970s feminism. Men, do your own laundry, learn to cook, <laughs> fold, clean up the table, wash floors, do the toilets, come on. And those lessons, I have to say, a lot of men, not just in the West, have taken to. Yeah. Yet we're stuck with our, and I don't wanna say our identities, because I think this, this is the problem is that yeah. you and I, I don't think women are claiming that we have identities. I think we're claiming there's a reality. And the reality is female is not a costume. Female is not right. a drag performance. Female is not vestiture. And female is most definitely not a feeling. And I take issue when I see people kowtowing to men, even some of the feminists are doing this to the more nicer trans activists who's, oh, but he's so kind. Or some of them will even use the preferred pronoun nonsense. And mm -hmm. it's like, wait a sec, our job in being kind 
as you know, from being a parent, sometimes the hardest thing you can do and the best kindness you can do for your child and your friends is to be honest. And I do question the ethos that all of these trans celebrants and trans, you know, activists who are allies mm. are that kind at all. I think they're, they're engaging in a form of very cruel gaslighting because yeah. they know who's male and they know who's not. Yeah. And they know who's the trans woman versus the woman uh, because the trans woman by definition is something else. Otherwise you wouldn't give them a separate name. So, um, so the other thing that I'm, I'm sort of thinking about as you're talking about this um, uh, is just my trip to Iran again, like it was quite a shock of course, to, you know, 1995, uh, 15 years or 16 years after the revolution. And for me to go in there without a male accompaniment, I mean, I already had people giving me strange looks, even on the plane on the Lufthansa flight flying into Tehran. Like, where's your husband? Where, why are you alone? Like people were just so shocked and I'm, you know, and then of course go on the ground, I had to learn how to wear the hijab and whatever, uh, when we were in public spaces. Uh, and of course in Iran, the fear, like, you know, um, the, when, when we book the sport field, which was outside or around men, we had to wear, we had to cover our hair and our everything. But then the minute that we had, let's say a booking inside a, a sort of a gym or inside an indoor space, you know, that first day we went in there, it was a shock to me again, because I was introduced to the 30 female coaches I was going to coach. And they were all looking down at the ground on the floor and they had their black, everybody's covered in black, you know, and picture of Ayatollah at the end of the room and the male um, head of the sports in Iran was introducing me uh, the, as their instructor and they would smile nicely at me, but then they would look down again because he's a man. And it was so solemn and I, I thought, well, how am I going to teach these women? And so um, once the man left and then I, I, the, one of the ladies who was my translator, um, and then we, we sort of went down into this gym area where, you know, was reserved for just us. And so we go into the indoor track arena and we shut the door, no men, the lights go on and literally the lights go on. Like all of these black cloaks suddenly fly off. And all these women who were just solemn and hardly making any expression and fearful, all of a sudden, like they, their black, you know, um, chadors and hijabs came off and they had gap t-shirts and like tights and running shoes. And they were laughing and they're like, all of a sudden the human light went on with these women who I thought I was so shocked because I thought, oh man, how are we going to teach them anything? And then once we got in there, they were so eager to learn and we were just moving and, you know, doing the sports and everybody's talking. And it was just like humanity was gone on the outside. And when, as soon as we stepped in this building, humanity turned on and this is what I'm seeing in the trans thing. This, that whole experience for me over there in Iran actually informs me all these years later, because what the intersectional or whatever the kind of feminist you're talking about who shut down other women and call us turfs or whatever, those women have conceptual, they're wearing conceptual chadors. Like they're not, it's crazy. I, I mean, you know, they're not doing it physically. They're not throwing that 
you know, the, the chador or the, the burqa over themselves physically, they're doing it conceptually, Julian. And it's just so, par the parallel for me, it just seems so absurd. I'm watching them try to cover their hair, so to speak, so that they don't offend a man. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm speechless. I can't believe this is happening in Canada. So you're saying metaphorically, this is what's happening in Canada? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was happening. That's in Iran, like in anywhere else in the world where you have a lot of feminists telling us what we can and can't do and how we can't offend a man. But and and you know what? When I was in Iran, the one of the ladies who was leading the course, longtime amazing athlete. Now, then at the time I went to Iran, she was the head of the women's sports um, group. But in the 70s, she had been, you know, pre um, Ayatollahs uh, in Iran during the time of the Shah, which was equally sort of problematic, but they, they were at least free and women were out there and they were competing. So in the 70s, this woman was top long jumper in Iran and she got to do the Asian Games. I think she even won. She was like a tremendous athlete. And so when I went to her house um, as a guest, when I was visiting and you know, just a beautiful meal where we sat on the beautiful carpet and had the family meal. And the funny part is during the family meal, just incidentally, it was so funny because they pull out this TV for entertainment. So it was Mr. Bean. So I was like, what? Okay. But anyway, um, so we're sitting there eating this really beautiful meal, Iranian food and on the carpet. And she pulls out the, um, the, the photo album of her time as um, a female athlete and top Iranian champion. And I'm, I'm, I'm so interested. So I'm looking through, I love photo albums. Um, I'm looking through this, her past and, and, and every shot where she, where it shows her landing. So if you imagine somebody land, landing in long jump and their feet are forward and it's kind of spread. And so it's like, we call it in sport, the crotch shot where you know, somebody's landing in the long jump pit, their feet are up, their arms are very athletic. Every single time there was a picture like that, somebody had come around along and ripped the, the pip, literally ripped the paper photo, ripped the crotch area out of the photo. So basically, <laughs> so you have the two spikes in the air, like your two feet, and then the photo was ripped. And I'm like, I, I see it on one photo and then I turn the page and I see it in the next photo. So I look at her and she, she's like smiling at me. She's staring at me because we weren't, you know, we don't speak the same language and our interpreter wasn't there. And I kind of started looking at her and she's laughing. <laughs> and I finally pointed at the photo where the crotch was ripped out again of the shot. And I just kind of had this questioning look in my eye, like why, what happened here? And she said, mom mom or mama or whatever the you know mother her mother did that um and so i thought mm -hmm, as i was learning about you know uh islamic you know like just trying to be uh, in that kind of an environment where you are restricted um uh women reinforce those rules so in other words she couldn't even have a photo album of herself as an athlete without another woman coming along and purifying it by like ripping out the crotch shot part of the crotch of the of the picture, the, the shorts. So, so again, I'm seeing this parallel here. I'm seeing this in the Western world. Other women are keeping us pure 
on behalf of a male rights movement. That's what I, that's what I see it. That's why I'm so, I'm so outraged by this. Like I just, you know, when people wonder, well, I know a lot of my friends and family, what, you know, is it really worth it to do all this? Is it really worth it to speak up for women's sports? In my case, it's just women's sports. That's my arena. If I was in another arena, I'd be fighting over there. But it just seems like having seen the world and seen what happens to women around the world and being in what I would consider the best, the freest of societies, and we somehow find a way to lock ourselves down. Anyway, we lock ourselves down. We do it by, you know, we have other women trying to police our purity in terms of what men want. Absolutely. I have a good friend in Saudi Arabia, Mediha, who said to me once, well, we are just on the other side of the same coin as you, where your culture exploits and, and convinces its populace that more skin is better ours covers us up. And I've thought about this in terms of uh, even work I've done. There's a concept in, in Islam called fitna. And fitna, it's a beautiful word, actually. Um, it means to diametrically oppose things. It means it's incredible beauty and power. It also means an incredible violence. And fitna goes back to the last wife of the prophet and Aisha was his last wife and after his death she led a battle which has come to be known as the battle of the camel god forbid it's called the battle of a woman's name she led this <laughs> battle and it is known by islamic scholars as a fitna it was that moment of chaos and a lot of feminists from Fedwa Malti Douglas to Stefania Pandolfo have worked on this concept of where woman becomes this locus for cultures. And I see this within my own family in India as well, where we become the bookmarks for culture. I give you an example in my own family. Aside from the actual wedding day, it's very rare in all the other days of Indian wedding celebrations to see men dressed up to the nines. They will come wearing kurta, like the long tunic to the knee, with jeans these days. But it's women. We have to show up. I can't tell you how many times I have to run out and buy a ton of saris, you know, because I'll be in India. I won't have my saris will be in the south of the country. And then I'm like, oh, wedding. And you got to have like changes even if there's two events some days but indian weddings are unbelievable so you know women will be showing up you won't see a gene in sight not even by like my family's upper middle class not so we are that sex that keeps up the cultural window dressing we are the sex that keeps up everything look what's happened in lockdown you know there's no bigger sign of misogyny than a country, and I'm now including every country on the planet, that locks up and assumes there was never a discussion of who's going to take care of the children. No, it was already written by not writing. It was assumed that it was going to be the women. The whole concept of woman through the concept of fitna is that women are located as a cultural space of meaning through this notion that we are both the creators and the procreators and the destroyers. And you have this, look at Durga in Hinduism.
We've got it in all cultures. And I think it's fascinating that we're seeing it again. And I look at the trans thing, most days it frustrates me, but sometimes I'll step back and I'll say, anthropologically, you know, this is a trip because we're seeing men who feel marginalized. I mean, these are, I call them Archie Bunker type of men. In fact, I prefer Archie Bunker. Yeah. At least he was <laughs> up front. He'd like, Eat it, stifle it. And then we have these men who are trying to not look like Archie Bunker, but who come off being far worse because there's the dishonesty that women pick up on. I mean, one thing the trans lobby doesn't understand about what we're saying is you're creepy. And the creepiness is the pretend language of like, do you understand that we can read and write? It's no longer the 12th century. We can actually read and write. We know you're men and we know what man means. So don't sit there and bro dude explain to me that I don't know what sex means. And they are telling people like, you know, Emma Hilton, they're trying to tell her that sex is non-binary. She's a scientist. And this is the insult. It's like, oh, they want us to come and be like Scarlett O'Hara, you know, or, or even like a Betty Davis character, you know, mm, the mm-hmm. kindness of strangers. Thank you for that. I'll get educated. And so the yeah. whole get educated and then the mm-hmm. handmaidens, they're the kinder, gentler souls. And our sisters need us. I'm in a group that related to the events over the vigil in London this past week. Okay. And I've been explained that I don't understand biology by some 20 something women and uh, 20 something age women. There's two of Mm -hmm. them who are trying to explain to me. I don't understand that sex isn't male and female anymore. And it's like, (laughs) wait a sec, are you on a ship from Mars and you've sucked me up? Like this is out there. This is, if you had told me this was a cult, I would have no choice, but to believe you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, but they, they basically, one of the funniest things, and not funny, but strange, strangest things about the, the I guess I would call it wokeism or woke cult, um, is that everything they say is, is opposites. You know, it's like um, they, they, they're trying to keep people safe, like safe and inclusive. It's not safe. If you allow a male into a female space, and especially in the context, context of the prisons, for example, or even sports because of the contact and all that. It is unsafe and exclusionary. It's not safe and inclusive. And yet they walk around with this phony, smiley thing. Uh, oh, we're going to make it safe and inclusive for everybody. Well, you know what? It's exactly the opposite is that. And then there's just so many examples of what they say and then if you, <laughs> or, or they tell you, tell us like we're being hateful and yet it's projection. It's what they're doing, like forcing women to accept a male body in their space that could actually really be hurt, you know, could really hurt people that's hurtful. And yet they're saying that we're the ones who are causing hurt and pain. And I mean, it's just so incredible. It's, they speak in opposites. Like if you just turn the, whatever they say, if you flip it upside down, it's actually what they mean. That's the irony that a lot of people don't see, because this is, again, I use the Sarah Silverman stinky people don't know they stink paradigm because the 
people who are saying that we're exclusionary refuse to see their own exclusionary basis for making the statement. You can't possibly state that women are excluding anyone. We saw this the other day, The Guardian ran a piece about another state that made a law banning transgender girls from sport. Well, no, that's not what happened. Yeah, The state didn't say these boys couldn't participate. The state said these boys, I believe it was Mississippi, had to participate with other boys. That's all they are doing, yeah. It's shocking that states like Mississippi, which were certainly not on the forefront of human rights 150 years ago, are more in tune with the human rights of women than other organizations. Not all these other organizations like the HRC and the ACLU, that's, oh, that's depressing. ACLU has gone down the drain, my friend. And it's really sad to see that there is absolutely zero concern for the human rights of 51%. I just feel like, again, opposites, they talk about tolerance, right? But the, what's more intolerant than saying any female person's opinion about their sex-based rights is just irrelevant uh i mean <laughs> i mean the, the the very word woke actually expresses itself as myopic like they're just they're just completely ignoring you know reality of whether it's biology or anything else I, it's just i find it really i mean it's 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 scary in a way but it's it's kind of uh humorous actually to stand back and look at what they say and what they do and what it means its meaning is opposite and it's just and yes you're right in the states i am very hopeful even though um you know president biden signed that executive order and everything that says sex and government now must mean a gender identity but the the fortunate thing is about you know the U.S. the way the the system is set up, when you have those three branches of government, the executive, and then the legislative, and then the judicial, the president can can say whatever he wants as far as that goes, and it does have an impact. But on the other hand, the states function independently, and independent states can have their own bills to protect their own people, which I find you know there's I think by now there's about maybe 24 to 28 states in the process or somewhere along the line of introducing the same kind of bills as Mississippi. And um, that's more than, you know, that's reaching half and almost more than half now of the states are saying, well, listen, you can go ahead and say that in your executive order, but we're going to do this other thing on the ground. And I find that a hopeful thing. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Let's go to your book that's coming out soon, Unsporting, How Trans Activism and Science Denial Are Destroying Sport. Can you tell us when it's coming out? I see it's being published by Rebel Media. Mm -hmm. And what is your central focus in the book? Well, I basically, um, I, I am going through uh, the reality of where what we're seeing on the ground in sport, not only in Canada, but across the world. And 
but then how the um, Canadian in the Canadian context, um, the policy developed through the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport and now being adopted the biggest, the greatest absurdity is what we've been talking about the 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 missionaries that go across the country and preach um, gender inclusion in sport uh, to all the sports associations is the the one body in sport governing body that was supposed to be taking care of the female athletes, which is the Canadian women in sport. It used to be called a Canadian Association for the Advancement of Women in Sport. And now it's just Canadian women in sport. And those are the women that run around preaching the gender bred person to everybody. Um, so the one government funded agency that is uh, given most of the funding uh, for women's, women's sport is captured. And so I just wanted to point that out. And so I follow that and, and sort of follow that line in the book. And then I talk, I go on to talk about the world rugby situation and how that was a big breakthrough. And then I talk about the last chapter in the book is, is about Biden's executive order and what that, what the implications are with that. Um, and, and, and it's really just an expose to say, look at, you know, wake up, this is happening in sport and it's something we all need to deal with. And my uh, proposal is really that if we are going to keep a binary system uh, of sport categories, uh, then it should be the male, the male section should be changed to be open, to mean open. So there should be an open and then there should be a restricted female section. And I think that would take care of a lot of the problem because when you, when you add new people to a category, um, they should come in sport. You add people based on the absence of a competitive, competitive advantage. So if somebody wants to call themselves trans and compete, we'll go ahead and compete with the men then, because that's, you're not bringing a com competitive advantage to that field. Right. Um, so the females should be exclusive and restricted and the males and the, the male category should be the open category until we have, unless we have a middle trans category, but if you're going to have a middle trans category, you know, what's going to happen. The trans women would always beat the trans men because of biology. So then we'd have to split those two up. So then you'd already be splitting based on biology again. So why did we do that in the first place? Then we should just go with female and open. And I, I guess that's really my proposal, our proposal in the book, Barbara Kay wrote it with me. Although I, she, she doesn't want to be called my co-author. I was saying by Linda Blade with Barbara Kay. I think she did a lot more editing <laughs> because I'm not an official writer, but um, you know, it, she, she did help. And you know that we're going to get a lot of criticism because of rebel media, but you know, the fact is um, there is no other outlet that would even contemplate writing or uh, having to publish such a thing it's interesting because just a couple of days ago i believe it was on monday the it was announced that the u.s army had to backtrack on its new gender neutral fitness test so you know <laughs> if the army's figuring it out without any joanna harper chiming in uh, why why is it that the ioc has been so reticent to even have women sitting at the table. You know, as I mentioned, I, I interviewed Selena Sol. I've also interviewed Jennifer Wegner Asali. I also And Beth, Beth Stelter. Yes, exactly. And then I also interviewed one of the colleagues of Joanna Harper, 
because there's loads of research and peer-reviewed articles about muscle strength, bone density. It's all out there. I wrote a piece yeah. in Quillette from February of 2019 called Confronting a New Threat to Female Athletics. And Joanna Harper was part of a research group to study, in fact, any potential advantages or disadvantages and present this to the IOC. Now, I spoke to one of his colleagues in the U.S. who ran the study. Yeah. What was interesting to me, his name is Siddhartha Agnadi, a cardiovascular huh. physiologist from Arizona State. He was a okay. lovely man. But he said to me as a sidebar, did you know, however that there are some very important and dangerous aspects of the research that we found so far. And I said, what? And he spoke to me about the mortality rate in their study. And then he referenced the coronary drug project, which was conducted between 1966 and 1975 to assess the long-term efficacy and safety of five lipid-inducing drugs in 8,341 men age 30 to 64 years of age, with electrocardiogram-documented previous myocardial infarction. The low-dose estrogen these men were given had to be terminated as early as 1973 because of an increase in cancer deaths compared with the deaths of those receiving placebo. Of the 8,341 patients originally enrolled in the coronary drug project, 2,333 were known to have died by the end of the trial in February 1975. Wow. Yes, there was a conference at the University of Brighton under the title Beyond Fairness, the Biology of Inclusion for Transgender and Intersex Athletes, where Joanna Harper, a medical physicist at the Providence Portland Medical Center, and Professor Yanis Pitsiladis, a professor of sport and exercise science at the University of Brighton and a member of the IOC, were brought in to discuss the possibilities of a third gender category. Hmm. But in reality, according to the person I spoke to, she had told me that only Pitsiladis would consider the third category option. Harper was not. Now, this is interesting because this is right up there with what we were discussing earlier about the Yogyakarta principles. Mm -hmm. There yeah. was a lobby, a concerted lobby that formed 20 years ago to basically foment a superficial power structure in the sense of the way the Yogyakarta principles was drawn up was a, a group of human rights specialists. Well, if you scratch the surface, they were largely trans activists and mm -hmm. transgender people as well, largely. And so this, was, this is how lobbies are formed, by people who want to advance a certain notion and put it out there. So we have information from the Coronary Drug Project and the dangers of giving cross-sex hormones is barely making up lip in the media. Meanwhile, you've got the things that your book deals with that is the other side of the danger not just what drugs will do to people and being in Iran. I don't know if you heard the stories of what happened to those women who were given testosterone, but some of them have died. So then you've got the examples from your book that you give from yeah. Fallon, so Fox, Fallon Fox, Kelly Morgan, Hannah Mouncey. Can you discuss that chapter a bit? Well, yeah, because that was sort of, that's the chapter where I, I just sort of introduce what's happening so Fallon Fox is a mixed martial arts fighter who identifies as a woman, even though he's a man. 
And in around 2014, he engaged in a bout with uh, Tamika Brents, a female fighter, and uh, got into the ring and, and basically knocked her out or bloodied her and, and cracked her skull. I said crush her skull in an interview or in, in the debate with, uh, <laughs> with Joanna Harper, and Joanna Harper corrected me. He didn't crush her skull. He only cracked her skull. So I guess that's uh, equal opportunity uh, niceness uh, somehow in, or I don't know, just being nice and polite, a polite crack to the skull. But anyway, uh, Felon Fox uh, basically then came online and posted something on Twitter last year and around, I think it was 2020 when, when everybody was talking about JK Rowling and said, uh, for the record, I knocked out two women. One woman's skull was fractured, the other not. And just so you know, I enjoyed it. Um, so basically, don't be mad and winky emoji and smile emoji. So, you know, who are these people? I mean, honestly, like that's not sport. It's just performative. I don't know what, it, what, what we even call that because sport is, you know, com a competition of like type with like type. I mean, we're talking about two different bodies here competing with each other. Uh, two different morphologies and distinct. Um, and then uh, Kelly Morgan is is in the UK. Uh, Kelly Morgan is a rugby player from Wales who grew up playing men's rugby. Um, and um, now, um, you know, first basically retired, transitioned to, quote, being a woman, is a truck driver by day, but then is joining the women's rugby leagues. And of course the team that he joins is very happy to have an advantage having a male body on their team. But, um, there is the, um, you know, there is the concession that he folded opponents like a deck chair and, um, like we can, we can, um, keep this player around and really helps us out as long as he, uh, we try to minimize how much pain and injury he causes even our own players in practice kind of thing right so um i don't know it's just and and of course hannah mouncy i guess the reason i brought hannah mouncy up in that first chapter was also to um illustrate the gaslighting that happens because hannah mouncy is large you know six two or six three and over 220 pounds uh as a former you know male player in in um handball and, and even to, at the international level, male player, a huge man who's trying to play now in a, on a woman's team in, the, in Australia. And basically, when people objected to him uh, being in with the women and girls, he said, well, you're sending women the wrong message. You're sending the message that being a big woman isn't welcome in, in sport, as if it's as if we're fat shaming some like he turned our objection into being uh, against a male and female sports to, oh, you're just being, you're just fat shaming people and you're telling big women that they can't participate in sports. So, I mean, in every single way, and in each one of these three cases, there's a form of gaslighting, right? That just, um, mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's, it's aggressive. It's not how women athlete are athletes are. It's not how women behave. It's not, I mean, it's not how humans behave in sport in sport. It's supposed to be about ethics and and integrity and fighting fair right and and these people don't know how to do that um they count on the unfairness actually to impose themselves 
And so, you know, I just bring up these different cases. Um, and then when the younger generation of 20 somethings tell us we're supposed to be nice and it's supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to accept trans and, and because we're being inclusive. And then you think about somebody like Laurel Hubbard from New Zealand, who's a weightlifter who actually won the Pacific championships in 2019 over somebody who was truly oppressed and, and unprivileged, which was the Samoan, you know, the Samoans, uh, uh, who mm -hmm. was, who had been in a shelter, a woman's shelter as a teen, having been abused and, and, and the Samoans helped this young woman, um, find her way through sport out of, you know, the oppression and victimization that she was feeling and experiencing. And she became national champion and, and a huge and amazing weightlifter. And she shows up and gets beaten by the son of a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> then New Zealand, a white male, 40 something man who had, who had competed as a male all his life. And then suddenly realized, you know, he, he kind of was his, his performances had plateaued. Then he identifies as a woman. And he's supposed to, we're supposed to feel sorry and, and allow him to take the podium. And meanwhile, Fagaiga Stowers, this other girl from Samoa, stands there in the silver medal position, head bowed, because she's not allowed to say anything. It's the only way she can protest. And so she's, she's supposed to stand there and be sort of okay with the fact that a white male son of a millionaire privileged person self-identifies as a woman and he's more oppressed than she is suddenly but it wasn't surprising when i learned the role of mouncy's father a serial giant in the country mm -hmm. so of course he had the money to take mm -hmm. these people to court you know all these lobbies that are going after the oversight of women's sports yeah are yeah. afraid they're afraid of going bankrupt they're afraid of mm -hmm. spending all their money on a defense mm -hmm. and so a lot of them do fold what what was different about the recent decision by world rugby yeah well the world rugby realized that they probably wouldn't survive litigation on the other side of it if they allow men into women's sports and women get injured i mean I think there's a rule and I can be corrected. I think uh, officials in rugby are, are personally responsible also for safety. So if you're, you know, if you're a rugby referee in a game and you see that somebody might, one athlete might really hurt another athlete, you could be held responsible and, and it could be subject to litigation. So uh, some of the officials were saying, well, we can't do this. I, we're not, how do we deal with this? Because, you know, you can't officiate anymore if you're going to see such tremendous injustice and also possible danger. And so World Rugby did really try, you know, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, brought in their trans inclusion, their transgender athlete consensus on, in 2015. And World Rugby spent, you know, a few years trying to live by that. But they realized um, by late, somewhere in 2019 that they were going to have to review the policy that they've just accepted the IOC recommendation without really testing it and really looking at it carefully. And so in February, 2020, so exactly a year ago, or just a month ago, I guess a year ago, um, they convened this uh, working group, which it was amazing. Like this is how it should have been done. 
<clears throat> excuse me, in the first place. So, uh, IOC, when they came, brought the consensus and the policy in, they should have done what World Rugby did. But finally, World Rugby, one sport of all the global federations of sport, rugby did it right. They brought all the arguments to the table, medical personnel, legal personnel, human rights people, ethicists, kinesiologists, trans activists, women's uh, rights uh, activists like Nick Williams and, and Emma Hilton and and biologists like Emma Hilton and just they brought everybody to the table and and let them you know present their case about um, allowing self-ID in sport and the impact of male bodies in women's sports. And they they all the evidence was there and, and they 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 let it, you know, be shared on their website so people around the world could look at all of the resources that were compiled to review the case. And at the end of the day, there was overwhelming evidence that having male body in women's rugby could cause at minimum 20 to 30% greater uh, a number of injuries and more severe injuries to the head and neck um, of the players. And of course, I mean, there, there are so many other things that obviously came out of that, that review, like male bodies are, you know, 20 to 40% heavier, uh, 30 to 60% stronger, 33% more explosive. We could just go down the line. The punching was the amazing part. Um, the punching uh, advantage that men have is 160% over women. Um, so, and that happens in the scrum, you know, you can imagine. Right. So, so rugby, basically world rugby had no choice, uh, uh, but to rule, you know, that for the sake of, of, fairness and safety. And at least at the international level, elite women's rugby would not be allowed to include male bodies to self-ID males. Um, but of course there were people like Joanna Harper on that, on that working group, uh, who basically said, well, you didn't consider all the evidence and it was very unscientific. No, that's not true. Like every single bit of evidence was at the table, like every single bit of evidence. And of all the studies it ever been done in history in terms of um, studying male body, like men who are transitioning, like when you just pre-hormone replacement therapy, the muscles and the strength, and then post um, HRT. And it really literally showed that the, the muscle strength does not diminish appreciably. And the basic advantages are not diminished at all, uh, really within anything close to the female range, even after three years. Uh, and of course, Emma Hilton and Tommy Lungberg then published those results uh, in um, December of this past year, 2020. Um, and so, you know, the data is out there and um, irrefutable really. And even now Joanna Harper's own study just came out recently showing the same thing that that hormone replacement therapy over a period of time, a period of years doesn't bring the strength levels down. Um, so rug, world rugby, thank goodness, um, said, you know, we're, we're just gonna have to draw the line here. However, because the individual rugby unions are captured at the national level, whether it's Rugby USA or Rugby Canada, Australia, um, all of these individual rugby unions from the countries said they would not abide by the, by the world rugby uh, decision. Uh, they, they denounced it, called it bigoted, 
Um, and because there was pushback from the individual rugby unions, uh, World Rugby did ha allow the concession that in the in the, like at the national level and local level, they can include uh, trans women or male bodies into women's sports. So uh, that was a little bit of a, a concession, I think, that too far. But um, uh, like, where do you? Here's what. Here's the frustration I have with saying we're going to bar. You know, we're going to preserve. We're not well, they are barring trans women, males from female rugby, but they're not barring them from the sport. I mean, they can still compete with the men. So we're going to bar the males from the female game at the international elite level, but, but we're going to just still allow them. It'll be okay with us. If you let them do that, compete with women on the ground. Well, part of the frustration I have with that is where do they think elite women come from? Like every, all of these athletes start on the ground, like in the communities. And if, if you're going to allow males to come into the game and it's unsafe, how many girls who would normally just be introduced to the game and play the game would be willing to do it now and come in there and risk their safety or somebody's going to get killed. I think if that happens continually, um, you know, either paraplegic or somebody breaks their neck and dies. I mean, we've had kids die in rugby in Canada, just even within their own category. Right. Um, so, you know, I just think that world rugby and even the IOC, like, I don't know, they're cutting themselves off at the legs because the athletes come from somewhere. And if you don't protect women's sports, the feeder system will be gone. That's right. And this is also discouraging for younger sports girls and sports women who are just starting to think about participating in sports semi-professionally, for instance. Yeah. I know speaking with Selena Sol, I mean, one question I asked her was, you know, how did you fare with this? I mean, emotionally, mm -hmm. it's a very hard thing to go into something yeah. knowing that you're going to lose. It's yeah. very different than knowing that you could win. You no, know, it's a different mentality for sure. It seems like this has been quite a successful lobby in terms of capturing institutions, mm -hmm. governments, media. Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. try to find anything critical of men competing against women half their size in the left or yeah. centrist media. You won't find it. No, you won't. What is what is the way out of this? Because your book also looks at, you know, I noticed uh, one of the chapters was about the Zuby strike. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. Zuby strikes gold is what you call yeah. it. Yeah, and yeah. And of course, some of the people that were involved with the runners in Canada, Terry Miller, Andrea Yearwood, yeah. uh, again, they're called brave. But these are boys <laughs> who basically rob titles from girls. Yeah. I think we have yeah. to stop pussyfooting around that. Um, yeah. Obviously, Rachel McKinnon, who's now yeah. renamed himself. Mm -hmm. um, Veronica Ivy. And then you have also another level that's going on here, which was a bit disappointing to me. But after the Martina Navratilova interventions on Twitter, I yeah. thought we were going to see some very positive actions from her. Instead, yeah. she, with some other female sports women, have formed an organization that's very much on the pity train and they're yeah. being acquiescing and kind 
why are women taking care of men? Because the men know how to, to flip the narrative to it's about the children. So I think that if it were just the adult males and the people like Laurel Hubbard or, or Rachel McKinnon or Hannah Mouncey, I think the women in the U.S. who are forming that group would be very, very, I think their line would be a lot harder in terms of saying, look, you can't allow this to happen. But now because of this unethical transitioning of children, now you've got children in USA schools who are definitely going to be impacted by sports policy in terms of their ability to just participate in sports, which I don't, I'm not giving them cover. I'm just saying that it's being framed like if you, if you keep the traditional male, female binary policies in sport, you're going to hurt trans children, all these children who are transitioning and taking hormones and changing around. And to that, I would simply say, I, I just, I don't see why that has to, uh, I think, I think they're mixing up sport with recreation is what I'm saying. I think, you know, there's no school that would exclude a trans identified or, or a trans child either way, whether it's male to female or female to male from playing in your intramural leagues or uh, playing sort of recreational, even in phys ed class, you and I both know that in a training situation, even I'm sure when, if you were in the army, there were many situations where there's lots of mixing going on, um, but it's when you actually go to run for the prize, that's where we're talking about where um, there needs to be some strict categorical rules. Otherwise, there's no meaning to that prize. And so I think there's this pity party. The pity party is about the, the falsehood that any of such laws that are going to be strong about the categorization, categorization in sport somehow means that trans kids will never be allowed to do any activity again, which is just ridiculous. I mean, we all know things, situations, for example, community sport where, or like, you know, pickup games of, you know, ultimate Frisbee where everybody just joins in. And mm -hmm. there's so much of that that happens in school, whether it's phys ed or during lunch break, or right. it's not like those kids are getting excluded from anything besides the one moment where you have to run for a, an actual, you know, official prize. And in that case, they need to be in their biological sex categories. Um, but clearly, this is about they're using sports, even in other paradigms. They're using yeah. prisons, I bizarrely, yeah. and prison yeah. sentences and so forth to wield the power to get mm -hmm. their sentencer, to get other female athletes, to get teachers to say, yeah. you're really a woman when right. this is compelled speech. Ironically, yeah. you know, many of the feminists had issues with Jordan Peterson, but yeah. he was completely spot on when he said, this is compelled speech and it puts us all in danger. Why should yes. any individual, much less a body, a sporting body that depends upon science and the yeah. bifurcation of male and female sporting divisions have to parrot yeah, Andrea Yearwood's definition of himself as a girl? No one should yeah. have to bow Nobody down should to have that. to do that. No, and that's just, again, it's just policy leaders being f fearful. 
actually, um, of the whole zeitgeist, like of the milieu, you know, we're all living in this culture and it's these, these, um, um, whether it's the school principal uh, or with their, or some other policy developer, um, it's always these people who are making the decision that are looking around over their shoulder instead of focusing on the issue at hand. And, and so this is where I, re- I, I want to pivot back to the IOC because um, I find it insulting that the women female athletes or female coaches or, or just generally women were not consulted by the IOC at all about this uh, inclusion doctrine, yet they bring in Joanna Harper to sit on their medical commission and make and help them make this decision. So, it, you know, and what's frustrating, and I keep saying this in various interviews, but, you know, women's uh, women had to wait till 1984. So the first Olympics that the women were involved in was 1900, a very few events, but okay. They were not quote allowed to run the marathon until 1984 LA Olympics. So it took 84 years when, you know, for women, for example, to get the, to run the marathon. Mm-hmm. Our experience in the Olympic movement is that every single step along the way, we've had to fight hard. It takes years, foot dragging. Anytime we want something as females, the IOC takes so long to approve and to vet it. And it goes through like the laundry cycle of checking, checking, checking. And yet they put Joanna Harper on this commission and within a matter of a year or two, they switch their policy, like, like snap of a finger. Like it just feels so misogynistic that (laughs) in every way, that women can never seem to make any progress or even get through to the IOC. And yet these male bodies come into this, you know, even if they identify as a woman, they sit on this panel and everybody listens to them like they're the world's authority. And in fact, Joanna Harper sitting on that committee commission literally caused the rules to change for every single woman on the face of this earth in terms of Olympic sports, one man. So when they say it doesn't even matter, like, oh, why should it matter one or two trans people? because we see that happening. One person changes it for everybody. So um, I don't buy that argument because it, it, it continues to backfire on us. And um, you know, I don't know if you realize, Julian, that there was actually women originally because we were not being included wholesale in the Olympics orig- and during World War I era, we actually had our own Olympics. Um, Alice Milat of France, um, you know, created the federa- Federation for Women's International Women and started our own Olympics. And so we had 1922 was the first Olympic Games uh, for women, the Women's Olympics. And then we, so it was 1922, 1926, uh, 1930, and 1934. And actually it was after the first little women, and we were filling stadiums. We were filling stadiums. And right. it made the IOC angry. And because the IOC was mad and wanted to, to basically control the entire Olympic movement, including the women, that was what convinced them to include women finally in track and field in 1928 was after they saw how women were filling stadiums on their own. And it, it really feels like a betrayal because they brought us in into the Olympic movement and they've been undermining us ever, ever since. 
Are there female athletes talking about getting out and forming their own? Just like the well, super straight movement? Maybe we yeah. should have a super female uh, athletic movement. Well, hey, it wouldn't be the athletes who do it. It would be people who like Alice, Alice uh, Milliard of France who are already sort of organizers kind of in my shoes uh, who were no longer really competing because the athletes themselves don't have the wherewithal or the energy. They're, they're spending all their time just focusing on their training. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have to be people from my generation and others who organize an alternative Olympics for women or alternative international women's uh, sports you know, conference or whatever convention and we probably could if we had enough money, but to take a huge amount of money. And, and I would say this, because I do believe in competition, the only way we'd get women to come over, because women do still, and I myself would say it would be a wonderful thing to be in the Olympic Games still. like I, I, We love the Olympic movement, but the fact, fact is, if, if you want to have a parallel system that really does profile women and just keep those, the, the rules uh, along biological-based you know, guidelines then um, we would have to offer a bigger prize money to the female athletes. So that would be the way to do it. Like we compete directly and give more incentives to the, to the female athletes to come and involve themselves in the women's Olympics. Right. Um, and they, you know, Alice was really smart because she, her Olympics for females was staggered purposefully in the two years between like the four year cycle. So instead of, so the male, the men's Olympics was 2024, 20, 28, and the women's was 22, 26, and 30. So basically, even when the women were accepted into the, the men's Olympics in 1928, you know, they could still be profiled in, in major championships to every two years instead of just trying to compete head to head with that Olympic year, right? So right. there's a way we could do it where sure i mean go ahead into the olympics you know themselves but maybe we can also have a women's world championship um uh or uh, some sort of other governing body where it is strictly females and we do have competitions with great prize money and double or triple or quadruple the prize money that they would get in the olympic games or any other kind of sport um, except of course, tennis, tennis has a lot, you know, certain like women's golf and tennis, they do earn a lot, but, um, there's a lot of women's sports that you don't earn anything. And I'm sure, you know, if you had something like that going, it would work, but it would take a huge effort and a lot of time and, um, a lot of organizing. So, I, I mean, we're not there, but I mean, we may have to be, if this continues.